stepping away from Exodus for a few weeks to uh, consider and quiet our hearts before King Jesus. We'll pray for the help of His Spirit to do that. I shared at the, uh, the Christmas breakfast that we had on December 4th a, a devotion that really kind of talked about what's called the Emmanuel Principle, and that is that God is, was, is always with us, and because He's always with us, He cannot be ignored. Uh, whether we come to bow and worship or whether we're trying to run from him, he simply must be contended with. And so Matthew begins his gospel by making sure that we know through this genealogy, this Christ, this Jesus is the king. But then chapter 2 wants to make sure that you know that in this king there is comfort for those who would approach him with a humble heart. They draw near to the one that's called a shepherd king. So let's read Matthew chapter 2. We're going to read 1 through 12 this morning as our text. Here's God's word. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it's written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house... They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Here's God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be willing to Give your people the ears that you would have us to hear. What you desire to say to your people. That you would remove every distraction and obstacle. That you would fix our eyes upon the Christ that is here worshipped in the text. We pray, Lord, that you would again be willing to use a, a really sinful, ordinary, crooked stick to point the narrow way to Christ Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Major world events always elicit a variety of responses. You can think about World War II. In New York, it's received with ticker tape parades and parties and celebrations. In Germany, the, what we call Victory in Europe Day is viewed with shame and sorrow. In the moment, it was viewed with uncertainty. Major world events always elicit a variety of responses. Many of you were alive when the Berlin Wall was torn down. I was finishing up 
high school at the time, and I remember watching on TV as people who really were my age or not a lot older were climbing up on top of the wall and, and with sledgehammers and heavy equipment, they were tearing down this, this wall that had stood forever. And then there's also shots at the same time of Soviet soldiers who'd spend their entire lives making sure nobody crossed that wall. And they're dumbfounded. Suddenly the barrier is removed. Consider Christmas. Major world events always elicit a variety of responses, and so it shouldn't really surprise us that some people approach this season with celebration, while others come to Christmas and mourn with sadness. Some have joyful memories of family celebrations and gatherings, and others have painful memories of of loss and disappointment. And for them, those festivities simply serve to, to, to stoke their sorrow and grief. There are some who receive Christ as a, as a treasured spiritual savior. For others, the birth of Jesus is humbug, an unfounded myth upon which is built expensive gifts, decorations, false hope. Won't surprise you then, will it, that the, on the actual coming of, of Christ, it was, a, it was a major world event. Major world events always elicit a variety of responses. Matthew 2 explains there's a variety of responses. And then it seems to focus the camera on these wise men, these magi who come from the far east. They're held up as if to say, here's a response that's, that's worth considering. Here's a response to emulate. And so our text says that wise men still seek the shepherd king. There's 12 verses here and they depict a genuine search and a straight answer. Secondly, a prophetic promise with actual hope. And then thirdly, pretend interest and sincere worship. And so our text begins with a genuine search and a straight answer. Um, John Henry Hopkins is the one who wrote the song that I'm going to reference. It is We Three Kings of Orient. At the time, he was the rector of an Episcopal church in Pennsylvania. And he penned this carol by taking content from Matthew chapter 2. It dates back to 1857, which really isn't very far back in the realm of church history. Many of you haven't heard it sung this way, but it was created with three parts uh, to be sung by three different men. And, and, and Hopkins named those three men as if they were the three kings here present. There's a few problems, of course, with that song. It belongs in some ways to the myth of the little drummer boy. First, there, there aren't three. There can't be. Uh, these uh, aren't just guys that hopped on their camels and decided to ride across the desert to find the king. Uh, this would be men who come from the courts of kings. These are, these are counselors who serve under kings, and there's no way they left those courts without a massive entourage. And so you can tell that there's a massive entourage by the way Matthew describes what happens when they arrive in Jerusalem. Secondly, these aren't kings. As I said, they're, they're men who serve in the courts of kings. They serve around kings, and they really have a, a job that's kind of a mixture of three things. Astronomy, like the actual study of stars, Magic, like as simple as pulling a rabbit out of a hat, or astrology. And that is the mythical presumption that the position of the stars in the sky somehow affects human affairs on earth. Uh, The point is, these are not Christian people. 
They hadn't been reading the scriptures for centuries and hoping to, to finally find the Messiah. But this is God's grace and kindness, isn't it? That he would speak to these men in such a, a way, through such a sign, that they would not only understand but take notice. They spent centuries in their cultures studying stars. Men before them had written about them and now they see that something's different and they, and they wonder to themselves, what is this here? We don't know exactly what God did. But somehow the wise men saw this star and they made a correlation between an unusual star and the promise of the coming king of the Jews. Scholars look at this passage and they try to speculate. Where did they get this idea? If you want to study Numbers 24, 17 or Daniel 9, 25, that may be a hint, but we really don't know. All you know is that God got their attention and that God used this to, to, to send them on a genuine search. Look at verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, Matthew is scant on the details. Perhaps he knows that it would be the tendency of readers to ask the how question. How did they see the star? How did they decide to follow it? How did they think they needed to go to Jerusalem to ask the questions? Matthew says that stuff's not really important. What matters is verse 2, the magi come asking a where question. And when they ask the where question, people who they ask respond with another question. That's why. Like, why are you looking into which they say, we're coming so that we might worship? They enter Jerusalem with a certainty that they need to find the king of the Jews. But these aren't Jews, so why do they care? Because everything that was foretold about Messiah was that the coming king would be the kind of king who would bless the whole world. The nations would come to worship him. Where is he, they say? And why are we looking? We're looking so that we can come to worship him. The question, where? The answer, why? And all of that caused quite a stir in Jerusalem. Look, look at verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. I mean, it's easy to understand why Herod is troubled. History tells us that this man, who's called Herod the Great, was a gifted politician. But at the same time, he's a really cruel tyrant. Under Mark Anthony, the Senate had put King Herod in place, and, and they said, you're the king of Judea. And so for 30 years, he'd been ruling in that spot. So by the time Jesus is born, Herod is known to be the king of Jews, but he's also a very old man. You also need to know that his ascension to the throne was immediately opposed. And there's been lots of times where he's dealt with battles He's used his own paranoia and his own cruelty to hang on to this petty kingship. He was so paranoid that he executed his own wife. He executed three of his own sons. 
So by the time the wise men walk into Jerusalem, Herod is old and he's scratched and clawed his entire life to hang on to this tiny bit of power in a tiny little spot in the Roman Empire. And so if history records his tyranny correctly, you can be utterly sure nobody ever came to worship that king of the Jews voluntarily. Suddenly a group of people from the court of foreign kings enter his jurisdiction and they say, we'd like to find the true long-awaited king of the Jews to worship. It was a genuine search. To say that Herod is troubled is probably a little bit of an understatement because Herod cannot see the Christ as anything other than a threat to his own power and his own control. Herod is perhaps more like many of us than we know. Maybe you aren't cruel. Maybe you aren't paranoid. Maybe you are. I don't know. But it's possible, isn't it, that for many years you have manipulated people in order to carve out a little spot of unshakable autonomy on some little territory that you hope to control. Maybe you lord over others who are under your care. Or could it be that, that, that like Herod, the Christ always represents at some level a kind of potential threat to your autonomy? Because if Jesus is the, is the king over your life, then he reigns over every tiny spot of power and, and autonomy that you so dearly prize. If he's king, then you're not. The Roman Empire was huge. The spot upon which Herod reigned was actually quite small. And for Christians, that's really the way autonomy works. I suspect that with God's help over, over time, there's been massive parcels of, of land in your heart that, that the Lord has, has laid bare and taken reign over. I just wonder if there aren't still little postage stamp places in your heart where the reign of Jesus still feels like a, a threat. Spots where you've heard him say with, with quiet conviction through the Spirit, uh, I'm king over that territory too. I have something to say in that spot. wonder if your life and decisions need to follow the lead of the wise men. These men who marched into Jerusalem and they were ready to worship Jesus on that spot. Perhaps you need to march into the Jerusalem of your thought life. Or you need to march into the Jerusalem of your bitterness. Or you need to march into the Jerusalem of your self-centeredness. And on those places, you need to say, Jesus reigns here too. For Herod, the implications of another king would simply mean the dethroning of his reign. That's very much what, what following Christ always is. And as you are dethroned, here's what you find. King Jesus reigns in those places far more perfectly than you ever reigned yourself. And in those spots, he extends more grace than you ever gave to yourself, more kindness than you would ever extend to anybody else. For the wise men, it was a genuine search. 
But then for the, the, the scribes and the priests, it, it was nothing more than a straight answer. You see, when Herod is agitated, everybody under his reign is actually on pins and needles because this is a violent, cruel man, and we don't want him to be on edge. Look at verse 4. Herod assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, and he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, and then as proof, they cite Micah 5, 2. So Herod called in the scribes, in other words, he called in the conservatives, those who were clinging to Jewish tradition. And then on the other end of the spiritual and social spectrum, he called in the chief priests. Not the ordinary priests, he called in the chief priests. He called in the the Sadducees, he called in the liberals. Those who are willing to embrace the Roman power and, and culture. Herod called in the Democrats and he called in the Republicans And then if they could agree on the answer, then he knew for sure he had the right spot. To his delight, they gave him a straight answer. And for whatever reason, it it didn't seem to affect him at all. Wouldn't you think that if you're a Jew and you've been studying the scriptures for centuries, that, that you, excuse me, your people had been studying for centuries, that this would be big news. That this would be the kind of news that would cause you to get up and and leave Jerusalem and go looking for yourself in Bethlehem. The Christ has come. Wouldn't you think religious people would be stirred? You would think it. It's actually very common, isn't it? Religious people can quote Bible verses. They know information. They just won't be moved by it. They just won't repent. They just won't come running to Bethlehem to bow down and worship. Now, I don't want to speculate here, but Matthew seems very brief on purpose, and I believe here's what he's saying. Nobody left Jerusalem to go look and follow the wise men. The liberals don't leave. Conservatives don't leave. Why? Because Messiah's reign is going to completely disrupt the world that they've come to love. If this really is the Messiah, what about their calm? What about their their peace and their safety? So the text seems to say, beware of religious knowledge. It somehow never moves the heart. Maybe you see something of yourself in these guys. And if you do, friends, the the Bible is telling you that there is still time to follow these wise men to Bethlehem. Wise men still seek the shepherd king. A genuine search and a straight answer. Now let's examine the prophetic promise and actual hope. It's really just verse 6. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, if you go back, we're in Exodus right now ordinarily. If you go back just a little beyond that, when Joshua brings God's people into the promised land of Canaan, the land is divided up and it's allotted by certain tribes. And during the period of the judges, there's no king in Israel. God is supposed to be their king. And and when they have need, God raises up judges to watch over them. Sometimes they serve like military leaders. Well, eventually, the Bible tells us that the people of God grew kind of tired of of not having a king like their surrounding neighbors. And so they said to God, we'd like a king like the nations. 
God told Samuel, who's the first of the prophets and the last of the judges, don't worry, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. So God said, okay, I'll give you a king just like the nations. A weak, fickle, paranoid man named Saul. And Saul, who comes from the northern tribes of Israel, during his whole reign, he has trouble trying to figure out how to unite the southern kingdom with the northern kingdom. And then as Saul's reign dies away, God raised up another king who comes from this little town called Bethlehem in the southern kingdom. And and David suddenly comes to power, and the Lord, through his kindness, unites the northern and the southern kingdoms, and they have a warm relationship, a fraternal brotherhood. He united, in a sense, all of God's people. And the people loved and they valued that David was a king who was also a shepherd. And if you read 2 Samuel, you go, but still he's wildly imperfect. When David died, his son Solomon reigned in his place over that united kingdom for another 40 years. Then after Solomon's reign, Israel and Judah divided again. Any Old Testament study of the kings of Judah will leave you with a a longing for a better king. Which is why so many Old Testament prophets foretold that the Christ would be a king who would unite all of God's people, not just the Hebrew people, but in fact the the nations would come under the reign of this king. Micah 5.2 left no doubt. The Christ was to be born in Bethlehem just like David. Why? Because the Messiah would be great David's greater son. Like his forefather, he would be a king. Like his forefather, he would be a shepherd, but very unlike David, the Christ, would not only rule, but actually shepherd the hearts of God's people. Matthew's quote of Micah 5 is a a prophetic promise with actual hope. Rightly understood, for Christians, there's a profound comfort. Many times throughout the centuries, God's people were, were governed by kings, Pharaoh in Egypt, a string of failed kings in the northern tribes of Israel, another string of failed kings in Judah. Sometimes they're incompetent, but usually they're tyrannical. And here they are, under another cruel, tyrannical king named Herod. Matthew says the Messiah is here, and he's going to rule over you while he also cares for your heart. One old commentator said the word shepherd suggests not just solemnity but also solicitude. Those are big words. What that means is this. Hope. Christ rules over you with a a seriousness, an earnestness, a providence. But he also shepherds you with attentiveness. With care, with kindness, with concern. The shepherd is, is, is not only intentional, but the king is sovereign. I wonder if maybe it would be helpful 
to examine where you sit today under the reign of this king who's also a shepherd. And when you consider him, would it be helpful to know that he's not only sovereign, but the circumstances and events of your life, even today, even this week, are formulated by his kindness, that you might be shaped and changed. Wow, what would it be like to be ruled by such a king of sincere power but profound tenderness? The fact that this even feels like a dichotomy to us says more about the failed human rulers that we've lived under than it does about Jesus. See, friends, the the reign of Jesus is actually not a threat of more tyranny. It's a promise of tender kindness. Perhaps in your frailty, it's hard to imagine surrendering fully to the reign of Jesus in the spots of your pain, in the places of your past hurts, over the spots where you sin here or worry there. To you, this prophetic promise is actual hope. Jesus says, you don't even have to worry because I rule with the deepest compassion over your hurts, the deepest gentleness over your pain, the deepest patience with your sins, and the deepest faithfulness in the midst of your worries. That's the reason that wise men still seek this shepherd king. We've seen a genuine search and a straight answer, a prophetic promise with actual hope. And we'll close with a pretend interest and sincere worship. If you Pick up at verse 7, you'll see where we are. Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star was to appear. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship. You see what he did is he gathered those Old Testament experts and he got his answer on the place. The child's going to be born in Bethlehem and then he dismisses the religious people. And then he calls in the wise men. He's so troubled and bothered that he needs to make sure the timeline. When did you first see the star? So that he can ascertain the approximate age of the boy. But he's secret about it. He didn't want anybody else in Jerusalem to know that he's asking the question, lest anybody think that this could potentially even be a big deal. Two years ago, huh? Fascinating. That's when you noticed it in the sky. So then then the baby would be like two. Listen, I'm just as interested in this king as you are. I'd like to keep it a secret because I want to be able to go after you and worship him once you find him. But the whole thing's a farce. At Christmas time, Herod really is a, a great reminder that outward religious expression says nothing about the heart. His words declare an intention. A longing to to worship, his heart is poisoned with opposition toward God. In some ways, it's completely irrational. I mean, you see, if the wise men are wrong about this prophecy and about this strange star in the sky, why does Herod need to bother about a a two-year-old boy in backwoods Bethlehem? On the other hand, if they're right, then this is the Messiah that's been sent from God. Why'd you, why would you attempt to oppose God's plan? Well, here's the thing. Rebellion against God is always irrational. You can't oppose God. You can't resist him. 
You can't alter his plans and his purposes, and you sure can't put him to death. That's why each and every sin really is, at its core, precisely this irrational. Those little tiny, somewhat unnoticed, heart-level sins, like pride, like discontentment, like selfishness, gossip, materialism. You're really good at veiling them, and so am I. And yet all they really are is a quiet rebellion to oppose God. Rebellion against God is always irrational. Maybe it's even more irrational for those who've already been freed from the bondage of sin through Christ. Sandwiched between Herod's pretend interest and the Magi's sincere worship, there's a a miracle. It's a capital M, big time miracle. Look at verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was was. Matthew's word is behold. It's, it's like look or listen. A star actually went before them and it led them straight to Jesus. We don't know what the star was doing back in chapter, I mean in verse 2, but what it's doing in verse 9 is different. It's different from what stars normally do. It is in front of them so clearly and so low that it can take them directly to where Jesus is. It's a six-mile journey from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. You ever wonder what this miracle looked like? It's a star that goes from really high in the sky so people can see it from hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles away to a movement that's very low so that they can go directly to the exact house light leading pilgrims to the Christ. And so this miracle actually points backward, doesn't it? It's so similar to the pillar of fire that led God's people out of Egypt, a light which confirmed to them God's presence with them. But more than that, it's a, it's a miracle that seems to point forward as well. Jesus says in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so if it was the Spirit of of God that moved the star and led these sinners to Christ, then it would be exactly the same work as when the Spirit of God still does that today. He still brings light to those who are in darkness, and he leads or he draws sinners to find the Christ. It is no less a miracle when it happens spiritually. And when it happens physically to the Magi, we gloss past it, don't we? Herod's pretend interest, the miracle, and then the Magi's sincere worship. Verse 10 says that the miracle itself, the star that was in front of their faces of these wealthy, intelligent, well-groomed men, causes them to rejoice exceedingly with great joy. Both kind and profound that God would choose to reveal himself to these men in such a precise way that they would take notice. God is doing something which is awe-inspiring and they couldn't miss it. Now look at verse 11. 
going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshiped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. If you're like me, you've heard lots of sermons over the years on perhaps what these treasures mean. Maybe they fulfill an Old Testament prophecy. Maybe they're a a foretaste of Jesus's coming death and burial and resurrection. There are possibly some links there. What Matthew is concerned that we understand is that the magi who spent their lives around kings brought gifts that were suited for a king, gifts that were beautiful, gifts that were costly, gifts that were fragrant. But it's not just the gifts themselves. It's the posture of the the givers that you have to notice. There are people in this story, really, who should know much more about the Christ than these foreign magi. In fact, the chief priests and the scribes have way better information than they do. Herod, who's spent his life ruling and serving in Judea, should know much more about this than they do. Matthew simply wants to draw your attention to one fact. These wise men acted on the very little information that they really had. And so they end up being the ones to whom we learn what it means to offer sincere worship to Christ. I suspect there's people that come to church around Christmas time. And they might sit in the pews and they might go, everybody else around me probably knows a lot more of the scripture and a lot more of the Bible. And the message of the Magi is you do not have to gain an education in order to come to Christ. You don't have to learn a new vernacular or learn how Christian people are. You simply come running to the Christ and you worship him for he was sent to save sinners like you. Well, the crowd people hated Jesus. They wanted him dead. Religious people ignored him because to them, the religious exercise was really more important than moving their hearts. Comfortable people didn't want to be uncomfortable for the king of the Jews was born six miles from their homes. Who wants to be inconvenienced to get up and walk six miles to worship Jesus? a huge difference between knowing about Jesus and being moved and compelled and desperate to worship Jesus. Those who truly worship Jesus bring their gifts. They bring what's beautiful to them. They bring what is costly to them, whatever is worthy of a king, and they lay it down at his feet. What are you seeking from Christmas? What are you worshiping? At Christmas, there will be many things that you seek, many things that you could worship. But wise men still seek and worship this shepherd king. 